Chapter Eight of the Four Faces by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Eight. More suspicions. Women are extraordinary. A platitude, of course, for everybody who has mixed with women and who possesses a gleam of intelligence knows that they are extraordinary, just as he knows or ought to know that if they were not bizarre and mystifying, complex and erratic, they would be less insidiously captivating than they are. There are, however, exceptions to most rules. Some misguided savant of a bygone epoch formulated a maxim which says that the exception proves the rule, obviously an absurd statement, for if one man has no nose on his face it is no proof that all other men have noses on theirs. Aunt Hannah constituted an exception to the rule that women are rendered additionally attractive through being extraordinary. Had she been less extraordinary she would have been more lovable. As it was she came near at this time to being the reverse of lovable, or so it struck me when, upon my endeavor to talk calmly and rationally to her, after hearing all that Jack Osborne had told us, and striving to induce her to listen to reason, she remained prejudiced, illogical. I shall not have cared a button, naturally, had it not been for Dulcie, and the estrangement between us that the foolish old lady's behavior created. Dulcie thought no end of her aunt, respected her views and sentiments. She had been brought up to do so, poor child, and I knew really loved her. Well, I said to myself tartly, she will now have to choose between Aunt Hannah and me. And feeling cocksure, after all that had occurred between us, that I should be the favored one, and that Aunt Hannah would be metaphorically relegated to the scrap heap, I decided to approach Dulcie at once. No, first I must see the original of that telegram, I reflected. Accompanied, therefore, by the police officer, I made my way to the post office in Regent Street. Having explained that I wanted to see the original of the telegram because, as I said, I think a mistake has been made in transcribing it, I was presently confronted by the postmaster, a most courteous, obliging person. "'Why, certainly,' he said, when I had repeated my untruth, "'you shall see it at once.' I waited in anxious expectancy, chatting lightly with the policeman while the postmaster looked through the file of the day's messages. "'This is it, I think.' he said presently, we were in his private room. But, he went on, glancing from the message that had been sent to the original, your original message is unsigned. Is that the alleged mistake of which you complain? Unsigned? I exclaimed, taking both papers from him. Why, yes, so it is. Then how does that message that was sent off come to be signed? The original message was typewritten. The wording was exactly the same as that in the telegram received, with this exception. The telegram received was signed, Michael Barrington. The type message had no signature. "'How do you account for this discrepancy?' I asked quickly. "'If you will kindly wait a minute,' he answered, "'I will inquire into this.' He left the room. The policeman to whom I had handed both messages was still contemplating them with a look of perplexity in his round eyes when the postmaster returned, bringing with him an intelligent-looking girl." This, he said, is the young lady who transmitted the message. I am afraid I smile. How long, I wonder, will post-office assistants and shop-girls 
bartenders and others continue to be young ladies, while ladies in the correct sense of the word never think, when talking of one another, of using terms more distinctive and dignified than girl and woman. "'Do you remember my sending this telegram this morning?' I asked, looking her full in the eyes. "'I remember taking in the message, but I'm afraid I don't remember your face, sir,' she answered nervously, evidently afraid that I was about to get her into trouble. "'You see, we see so many people, and most of them only for a few moments. I recall rather clearly taking in that message, because it was typed, which most telegrams are not. And and I thought it was handed in by a lady and not by a gentleman. In fact, I feel sure it was. Was it really you who gave it to me to send off?' "'No, it was not,' I answered quickly. "'A lady. Can you remember what she was like?' "'I can. She was, I think, really the most beautiful lady I have ever seen. She was quite tall, as tall as a man, and she had a lovely figure. It did seem to set off her beautiful clothes so well.' then her face was lovely too long dark eyebrows she had if i remember rightly and her eyes were large oh and she had a lot of auburn hair red you might almost call it i don't know which it was really but i never saw such hair good i exclaimed i turned to the policeman she has described beyond a doubt a woman i know a woman you will probably soon know something about too indeed sir he said interested but about this signature i went on again addressing the operator how does this telegram you sent off come to be signed if the original was not signed it was signed sir it must have been otherwise the name would have been telegraphed ah i remember remember what the signature was in pencil just after the telegram had been dispatched the lady came in again and asked if she might see the message again just for a moment she was not sure if she had said something she had meant to say, she said. I got it and gave it to her, and a moment or two afterwards she gave it back to me, thanking me very much for having let her see it. She must have rubbed off the signature then. She could do it easy with a damp finger. Of course I ought to have looked, but I didn't think to. I think we have now solved the mystery in part, I exclaimed triumphantly. This is some abominable conspiracy and I am going to get to the bottom of it. My name was evidently signed, telegraphed, and then purposely obliterated. After thanking the postmaster for his extreme courtesy and for the trouble he had taken, and impressing upon him that under no circumstances was the bright-eyed little operator to be censured or allowed to get into any trouble, I returned with the policeman, who was now quite apologetic, to the house in Grafton Street. The door was locked. A constable standing by, however, told us that Osborne and Easterton had driven away together in a car, his lordship's car, which his lordship had telephoned for, he said, and that the two ladies had gone to the Ritz for tea, he heard them say as they walked away that they were going there. Alone I followed them. I know my way about the Ritz as though I lived there, being there so often with friends, and I soon found Aunt Hannah and Dulcie. They were alone in a cosy private tea-room leading out of one of the large rooms which is but seldom used, having tea. I saw Aunt Hannah stiffen as I approached. I saw, too, and this disturbed me far more, that Dulcie had been weeping. Her eyes were still quite moist. "'What do you wish, Mr. Barrington?' Aunt Hannah inquired starchily, sitting bolt upright in her chair as I approached. 
I detest the use of the word wish in place of want. I don't know why, but I always associate it with prim, prudish, highly conventional old ladies. I have come to explain everything and to set your mind at rest, I said, trying to speak lightly and intentionally saying mind instead of minds, for I did not want Dulcie to suppose that I thought she shared her aunt's grotesque belief in this matter, the belief that I actually had sent that hateful telegram. I hope you will succeed, Aunt Hannah observed, then shut her lips tightly. She did not offer me a cup of tea, but I feigned not to notice this paltry affront, and proceeded briefly to relate what had just taken place at the post-office. At last, when I had, as I thought, completely cleared my character, I stopped speaking. To my surprise, the old lady remained as unbending as ever. I don't know why I've gone to the trouble of telling you all this, I said, hiding the mortification I felt, but you see, at any rate, that I had an explanation to offer, though I grant you that at present it can only be a partial one. That is no fault of mine, however. Partial? Yes, it certainly is that, muttered the old lady. Aunt Hannah had small green eyes, and they seemed to snap. She still sat up stiffly, her entire aspect rigid. This, I thought, is the limit. Decidedly the moment of battle has arrived. Indeed, the initial encounter had already taken place. I don't mind confessing that my spirit quailed for an instant. Then, realizing that I was up against it, my courage returned. My engagement to Dulcie hung in the balance. I must face the music. Perhaps at first I overdid it, but something is to be conceded to nervousness. Aunt Hannah kept tapping her teaspoon against her saucer with nervous little taps. The constant small noise was very irritating. Determined to stop it, I leant suddenly forward across the little table till my face was close to Aunt Hannah's. Anger boiled in my heart. Sympathy for Dulcie rose up and flooded my mind. Though I allowed my most charming boudoir smile to overspread my face, it was all I could do not to seize hold of that old lady and shake her. Inwardly I craved to grasp her lean wrist in a firm grip and force her to listen to reason. A dear, Dulcie had sometimes called her. A dear she might be when in a nice mood, but in the peevish vein she was now in her obstinacy held a particularly maddening quality. You know, I said, still smiling hypocritically, you are really trying to disbelieve me now. You are trying to make mischief between Dulcie and me, and you enjoy it and I glanced in the direction of my darling, whose eyes were shining strangely. "'Why don't you answer?' I went on, as Aunt Hannah remained silent. I could hear her gulping with rage. At last she spoke. "'What impudence! What unwarrantable impudence!' The words were shot from between her teeth. "'You! You dare to speak to me like this? You! You!' "'After all, Miss Challoner,' I cut in, "'it's true.' I no more sent that or any telegram to Dulcie than I am flying over the moon at this moment, and if you still disbelieve me, at least tell me why. Yes, I must know. Don't evade an answer. You have something else in your mind, I can see that, and I am not going to rest until I know what that something is. Oh, you very rude young man, she burst out. Yes, you shall know what it is. If, as you say, the telegram was not sent by you, and I suppose I must believe you, why was it not sent to Sir Roland? Such a telegram should have been sent to him, and not to his daughter, if the stolen property had been found, it was for him to come to town, 
or even for me to, but certainly it was not Dulcie's place to go gallivanting about in London. Now, I maintain it was sent to Dulcie because the sender knew Sir Roland to be away from home, and who but you knew him to be away? He left only yesterday, and he should return tonight. You knew because, so my niece tells me, she told you in a letter that he was to leave home for a day. My niece! Really, Aunt Hannah was qualifying for an opera bouffe. Just then she knocked her spoon so loudly against her cup that it startled me. "'Don't worry, Dulcie,' I said, seeing how distressed she looked. "'You believe I didn't send it, anyway. I don't mind what anybody else thinks,' I added spitefully. "'The mystery will be cleared up sooner or later, and he laughs longest. You know the rest. Only one thing I wonder,' I ended, again facing Aunt Hannah. "'If you thought that, why did you bring Dulcie up to town? Why didn't you leave her at Holt and come up alone?' "'I will tell you why,' she snapped back. Because, willful and disobedient as she has always been, she refused to stay at Holt and let me come up alone. Dulcie looked at me without answering, and I read love and confidence in her eyes. That was all I really cared to know, and the look afforded me immense relief. I felt there was no good purpose to be served by remaining there longer, so after shaking hands warmly with Dulcie, to the manifold disapproval of Aunt Hannah, who stared at me frigidly and barely even bowed as I took my leave, I sauntered out into Piccadilly. My thoughts wandered. They were not, I must say, of the happiest. Obviously there was an enemy somewhere. It might be enemies. But who could they be? Why should I have, we have, for Dulcie suffered equally, an enemy? What reason could anyone have for wishing to make Dulcie or me or any of the Challoners unhappy. Everybody I knew who knew them seemed to love them, particularly the tenantry. Sir Roland was looked up to and respected by both county folk and villagers for miles around Holt Stacy, while Dulcie was literally adored by men and women alike, or so I believed. True, old Aunt Hannah sometimes put people out, owing to her eccentricities and her irascible temper, but then they mostly looked upon her as a rather queer old lady, and made allowances for her, and she had not, I felt sure, an enemy in the countryside. As for myself, well, I could not recollect ever doing any particularly bad turn. I had my likes and dislikes among the people I knew, naturally. Then suddenly a thought struck me, my engagement to Dulcie. Could that be? I smiled as I dismissed the thought. It seemed too grotesque. No. Once and for all I decided that the whole affair could have nothing to do with any kind of personal animosity. Criminals were at work, desperate criminals perhaps, and Osborne and Dulcie and I had chanced to prove very useful as pawns in some scheme of theirs for securing plunder. I glanced at my watch. It was just five o'clock. Concluding that Jack Osborne must now be at his rooms, I drove to the Russell Hotel. Yes, he particularly wanted to see me. Would I please go up at once, the clerk said, when he had telephoned up my name and my inquiry, if Mr. Osborne were at home to anybody. Easterton was with him still. A doctor was on the point of leaving as I entered the room where Jack sat in his dressing gown in a big chair, drinking a cup of soup. Already he looked better, I thought, than when I had seen him at the house in Grafton Street barely two hours before. After exchanging a few remarks with him, 
and being assured by Easterton that the doctor had said that Jack might now see anyone he pleased, I came straight to the question of the telegram, repeating to him almost word for word what I had told Aunt Hannah. For nearly a minute after I had stopped speaking he did not utter. He appeared to be thinking deeply, judging by the way his brows were knit. Then, suddenly looking straight at me, he said, "'Mike, I don't like this business. I don't like it at all. There's something radically wrong about the whole thing. Now, look here. You know that when I say a thing I mean it. Therefore I tell you this. I am going to set to work, as soon as I have quite recovered from the nightmare I have been through, to discover what is happening.' I am going to solve every detail of this mystery, and if there is some gang of scoundrels at work committing burglaries and what not, because I feel quite sure this affair is in some way connected with the robbery at Holt, I am going to get them convicted. The doctor tells me I shall be perfectly all right in a couple of days. I have nothing to do. You have nothing to do. Will you join me in this attempt I am going to make to track these men down?' I hear it said that you were engaged to be married to Dulcie Challoner. If that's so, then you should be even more anxious than I am to get this gang arrested. The police say it must be a gang. They have looted some thousands of pounds worth of jewelry which practically belonged to Dulcie Challoner. Think what it will mean to her if through your efforts all that is restored to her. Besides, she will think you a hero, I mean an even greater hero than she already considers you, most likely. I confess I don't agree with her, old man. You are a very good chap. But a hero? No. Say then, will you help me in this search? It may prove exciting, too. On the other hand, it may not. Jack's breezy manner and almost boyish enthusiasm appealed to me. After all I had, as he said, nothing on earth to do. I often wished I had, and I was rather keen on anything that might lead to or savor of adventure. Though I was engaged to Dulcie, there were family reasons why the marriage could not take place at once, and then I thought again of what Jack had said about the stolen jewels. Dulcie was still greatly upset at their loss, and there was even the possibility, I thought with a smile, that if I were directly or indirectly responsible for their recovery, Aunt Hannah might eventually deign again to smile upon me, which would, of course, give me great joy. "'Yes, old chap,' I said. I'll do anything you jolly well like. I'm sick of doing nothing. First rate, he answered. Then that's settled. I've all sorts of ideas and theories about the Holt Manor robbery, and this affair of mine, and that telegram today, and other things that have happened, some you know about, some you don't. I have a friend who was for twenty years at Scotland Yard, George Preston, wonderful chap, knows London upside down and inside out and now he's kicking his heels with nothing to do he'll be only too glad to earn a bit. You might ring him up for me now and ask him to come here tomorrow. Somebody knocked and I went to the door, Jack having told me that he did not want to see anybody likely to bore him. It was only an hotel messenger. The clerk in the office had tried to ring up the room, he said, but could get no answer. Turning, I saw that Jack had forgotten to replace the receiver the last time he had spoken. What do you want? I asked. The messenger said that a young gentleman had just called. He wanted to see a uh, Mr. Barrington, who was probably with Mr. Osborne. What about, I said, and didn't he give his name? He wouldn't say what about, sir, though he was asked. He said it was most important. He said to say Mr. Richard Challoner. 
"'Dick!' I exclaimed. "'Good heavens, what is Dick doing up in London?' "'Oh, go down,' I said to the messenger, "'and send him up at once.' "'It's Dick Challoner,' I said, turning to Osborne and Easterton. "'Sir Roland's boy, the little chap I told you about "'who behaved so pluckily when the thieves at Holt got hold of him. "'I wonder what he's doing in town and why he wants to see me.' "'Then I sat down, lit a cigarette, and waited. "'I little suspected what an amazing story I was about to hear.' End of chapter 8 Recording by Tom Weiss, tomsaudiobooks.com